I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. In this episode, I talk about the realities of reforming post-sexual revolution. West has tossed off biblical sexuality and called it a sexual revolution, but in reality, it was a revolt, or to be more precise, a rebellion. The cost of this rebellion has been societal perversion and chaos, so things are bad, real bad, and we need a reformation. We as individuals, families, churches, and society need to be reformed, reshaped by the truth of God, and reformation, of course, requires reformers. Reformation should always start with the individual. Reform yourself. Become a godly man who is good at being a man. That should be your goal and starting place. But individual reformation at some point must spill out into other domains, such as the church. Now, I'd like to see a lot of pastors be raised up to fight this battle from the pulpit. Like it or not, wide-scale reformation tends to start top-down, not bottom-up. But nonetheless, this reformation is going to require more non-ministers, men in the pew, who are taking action, men like you. To do this, you must have the right frame of mind. Tactics and strategies matter, but they flow from your frame, from your belief. What then is the right frame? Well, the reformer is neither a compromiser nor a revolutionary. The compromiser has a can of paint. He paints over all the mistakes and says, look, it's fine. The revolutionary has a can of gasoline. He looks at those problems, those errors, and he sets the whole thing on fire and burns it to the ground and says, we have to start again. But the reformer, he has a toolbox. Reformers are pragmatic but principled. They recognize that both personal and corporate change is incremental. It's a form of sanctification. They don't create from nothing. They reform what exists. This is key. Here are three things that are necessary if we're going to see a sexual reformation and patriarchy in the real world and not just geeky online forums. First, you must accept that like individuals, there are no perfect churches and all churches require further sanctification. The Westminster Confession of Faith in its 25th chapter has these two sections, which I think are very helpful. The Catholic Church, meaning the Universal Church, hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. In particular, churches, meaning local churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure according as the doctrine of the Gospels is taught and embraced, ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. So no doubt there are many churches that are synagogues of Satan which you can't join. Churches with women pastors that condone same-sex attraction, that preach egalitarianism, that permit divorce for just about any old reason, and so forth. To join those churches would be to become a compromiser. But you do need a church, and you'll have to deal with imperfection and make small concessions. The revolutionary, he can't make concessions. He is what Bonhoeffer called a visionary dreamer. So second, you must not be a visionary dreamer, at least not in the sense that Bonhoeffer used it. 
In Life Together, Bonhoeffer writes, Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and, if we're fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live, even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream God is not a God of the emotions, but the God of truth. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes the destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Bonhoeffer is talking about the man who lives in his head and has crafted a church which can only exist in his mind. And when any church fails to live up to his vision, he hates it. It's a wish dream rooted in fiction, not reality. Thus, he must first become disillusioned with his wish dream so that he can get to work in reality. Bonhoeffer goes on and says, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamers proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own laws, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going smashed. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. I have met so many embittered, whiny, visionary dreamers who have come to despise the church and think of themselves as a lone voice in the wilderness, unappreciated, unrecognized, persecuted, and rejected. Maybe you're a Jeremiah or a John the Baptist, maybe, but maybe you're just a self-righteous fool who lacks discretion and shrewdness. Reformation requires both. Which brings me to number three. You must be a principal pragmatist. You can learn a lot by studying Reformation-era Geneva, especially as it relates to sexuality and sexual reforms. I recommend Sex, Marriage, and Family Life in John Calvin's Geneva. But there's another volume by the same author which has Geneva's consistory records, which are something like the notes or minutes from an elders board meeting. Listen to this quote. What makes the consistory record particularly valuable for our project is that John Calvin sat as a judge on the consistory. He rarely missed the weekly meetings of the consistory, and he sometimes dominated its proceedings, particularly in complex cases that required advanced legal training. The consistory provided Calvin with the laboratory to test and refine many of his theological ideas found in the Institutes, Commentaries, Sermons, and Statutes. It was one thing for Calvin to insist that marriage should be publicly celebrated with parental consent. 
It was quite another to decide whether a secretly married couple with a brand new child should be separated and their child thereby illegitimated and become a public ward. It was one thing to thunder loudly from the pulpit that adulterers of all sorts should be stoned. It was quite another to decide whether an engaged couple caught in heavy foreplay in their own bedroom should be sent to the gallows. It was one thing to declare anathema on interreligious marriages. It was quite another thing to deal with hundreds of desperate new immigrants who poured into Geneva with spouses of carious confessions on their arm. It was one thing for Calvin to say that married couples must live together at all costs, save in cases of adultery or desertion. It was quite another to insist on such reconciliation when a battered wife, already bent and lame from her husband's repeated savageries, stood before him with newly blackened eyes. It was on the consistory bench that Calvin was forced to integrate theory and practice, theology and law, principle and precept, rule and equity. Some of these consistory cases forced him to rethink and refine his prior theological positions on sex, marriage, and family. Other cases sent him scurrying back to his Bible and his books in search of new edification. Still other cases drew him back to the rules and procedures of Roman civil law and Roman Catholic canon law. The consistory experience certainly made some parts of Calvin's Reformation messier, more volatile, more difficult to follow or appreciate at points, but it also made his Reformation more realistic, rigorous, and resilient. In the end, consistory work ensured that Calvin's new teaching on sex, marriage, and family were both principled and pragmatic, not only formed through a new biblical exegesis, but also reformed through practical experience. Be a practical pragmatist, brothers. Applying principles requires wisdom and a degree of flexibility. It's easy to theorize, but often hard to realize your theories. It takes time. To tie this up, it's easy for pastors and other men to act in an intemperate manner in dark days like ours. Compromise is widespread in the church, and the reformers are few. Thus, the man can feel overwhelmed and embattled. In such a state, it's not hard for a zealous man to lash out against compromise, but do so in a way that causes as much harm as good. A desire for reform must be regulated by charity, patience, and the bond of peace. Calvin, writing on the moderation of discipline, writes, Nor must pastors themselves, when unable to reform all things which need correction to the extent which they could wish, cast up their ministry, or by unwanted severity throw the whole church into confusion. In a similar vein, Augustine writes, Every pious reason and mode of ecclesiastical discipline ought to always have regard to the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This the Apostle commands us, to keep by bearing mutually with each other. If it is not kept, the medicine of discipline begins to be not only superfluous, but even pernicious, and therefore ceases to be medicine. Cyprian again says much the same. Let a man then mercifully correct what he can, and what he cannot correct, let him bear patiently, and in love bewail and lament. The prophets suffered. The apostles suffered. Christ suffered. You want reformation? You want to see patriarchy in the real world? You're going to have to suffer both in little ways and big ways. Don't be a whined and battered visionary dreamer who only criticizes those actually doing something. Take the counsel of Teddy Roosevelt. 
It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or whether the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. Be reformers. 